Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Do you know where you are? You're in a dream. Would you like to wake up from this dream? Have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Westworld episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring ourselves back online to review episode two, Reunion. Directed by Vincenzo Natali and written by Carly Ray and Jonathan Nolan. IMDb gave this an 8.9 and Rotten Tomatoes a 96%. 96, that's near perfect. Way up from last episode, which they gave an 87. So this was a jam-packed episode. We have a lot to talk about. I mean, we have a podcast full of splendor today. (laughs) So why don't we start at the beginning? The critics say there was something thrilling in seeing the earliest phases of Westworld as a business and also experiencing the world outside the park for the first time. I agree. I think that's what I enjoyed most about the episode. We've been asking that question, what does the larger world look like for a long time? I don't know that we got tons of information. I feel as though this was just a glimmer. Well, we see that it's not too much off of the world we live in right now. I mean, it's definitely futuristic. It's got the city buildings. I believe we're in Asia somewhere. Big windows, but we have that now. Yeah, so people were speculating as to the timeline. Given everything that Logan is discussing, what's becoming new at this point, VR is just starting to come about. They're speculating that these flashbacks that we see probably occurred around our present time of 2018. Really? Yeah, I'm talking about the flashbacks where they're first presenting the idea to Logan and he's seeing the demonstration. Whereas if you fast forward to what we're considering relatively present time, the other timeline of the episode, it would be more around the year 2052. Okay, that makes sense. Well, I was excited to see the outside world. We've been talking about this since season one, wondering what does it look like? Now, just like you said, we're seeing what it looked like around now, but still it filled me with a little bit of excitement to see where we were. At first I was like, wait, are we in future world? And then when they started talking, I was like, oh no, we're outside, which is more interesting to me thinking of the hosts being out there already. I couldn't imagine why they were getting away with this, but then it added up that it was all for the demonstration to try to pull Logan and Delos in. But later we see the hosts are even being brought out for things like the retirement party. And that started to feel a bit reckless. I don't know if we're going to follow through with that more. I was also excited. We had speculated this would be the episode with more flashbacks to young William and Logan. And it is starting to flesh out that backstory. How did these characters come to be at the place they're at when the park first starts to open? Oh, I was so happy to get our reunion with young William and Logan. And I realized how much I enjoyed them in the show. I almost forgot about that. Especially Logan. He's really fun to watch on screen. He's a a handsome fucker. But also, (laughs) (laughs) he's so interesting when he speaks. And also the dichotomy of William quickly changing into the man in black that we know. Yeah, it was kind of a big step for me. It was a little bit of a jump. I need some more pieces as to how he's turning Black Hat in the real world so fast. I know that we got some of that last season, and I think it's important to return to that and reiterate the quote that the man in black himself gave us. In explaining things to Teddy, he said, I was a god, a titan of industry, a philanthropist, a family man. I had a beautiful wife and daughter. I was the good guy. 
Then last year, my wife took the wrong pills, fell asleep in the bath. It was a tragic accident. 30 years of marriage vanished like a deep and distant dream. At the funeral, I tried to console my daughter, but she pushed me away, said her mother's death was my fault, and every day with me had been sheer terror, knowing I could blow up or collapse like a dark star at any moment. I never hurt them. They never saw the man I was in the park, but she knew anyway. I had to prove her wrong, so I came back here, because the park reveals your true self. Okay, I got a few things off of what you've been saying. One, we talked about this last season. Once you kill something, someone, something, whatever, it changes you. Even if that something is a machine, and in your head you know, yes, it looks like a real person, but it's a machine. We saw that happening to William when he had his first kill. It started to change him a little bit, and then another, and then another. It kind of deadens you inside. And if you're the type of person that ends up enjoying it, it could be like a drug. And when you're not able to do it, this is a stretch, but you're going through withdrawal, which makes you quick to get angry, you know, very irritable. It's kind of like the chicken or the egg. We can't really tell which came first. To me, it sounded like the death of his wife happened first. And he was trying to play something out in the park to reconcile this, figure out who he really was. And it was just taking him to a darker and darker place. And that seriously fractured the relationship he had with his daughter. You might be right, but I think the man in black started to reveal himself towards the end of last season. And we saw the way his wife was reacting to him in that party, which was well before the wife died. Obviously, the wife was there. (laughs) Yeah. So I think she was already afraid of him a little bit. Of what he was turning into. Yeah, but he then says the turning point for him... When he came back after all that happened, he didn't just join one of Ford's stories. He created one of his own, a test, where he found a woman, an ordinary homesteader, and her daughter. He says, I wanted to see if I had it in me to do something truly evil. I killed her and her daughter just to see what I felt. And that, of course, is the big moment with Maeve that is bound to come up sometime soon in our story. And I think there was no going back. That's when he really transformed. You had mentioned before you got into this that you wish you could see more of how he transformed. But we have to remember that we're being fed bits and pieces because this show is trying desperately to be cryptic. And we'll get into that later. (laughs) This episode alone, we got three timelines. Yeah, that's a major device that they use in order to keep the suspense and the mystery alive, never quite understanding when things are taking place. How does that fit in with timelines we've already been given? Which could be very interesting, but when you're trying to take notes for a podcast, (laughs) after an hour, you're like exhausted. So to go over the three timelines, we have one, which is 30 years ago, before Delos invested. And the second timeline is everything that happened last season during the young Williams flashback. Yes. So after he came back to the States or back to the real world from being on Westworld. And the third timeline is two weeks ago after the party when Ford was killed. Yes, but we're also getting filled in some of what happened during those two weeks, the missing time slot. So we have a vague sense, like I said, of the big checkpoints. But how does that fit in with season one? What things happened before the first catastrophe in the park? You know, where in all of this did that first massacre take place? Where Arnold coordinated having the host killed at that point in time? And in addition to all of that, As you brought up, we're going to get some key reunions, thus the title of this episode. You talked about William and Dolores. We also got The Man in Black and Lawrence. I don't quite know the purpose of that storyline, and we'll dive into it, but I do love seeing these two on screen together. Oh, there's a big purpose. 
It's part of the game. But we'll get into that. We'll get yeah, into I have a lot to say about that. And finally, Maeve and Dolores, while brief, this is the first time I believe that we've seen them on screen together since Dolores whispered the Violent Delights trigger to Maeve last season. Also, we have the reunion that we get with the young William and Logan. And perhaps the biggest information given to us is the purpose of the park. Why did they do this in the first place? Why did James Delos agree to invest? Now, I don't think it's the only reason they make reference to that. But a big part of why he agreed was in order to use the information as blackmail and extortion. They're able to watch all the activities people engage in when they think no one is looking, and that gives them a lot of leverage. I still don't know if that entirely explains why they are taking things like DNA from our guests, and they kind of make a cryptic allusion to allowing somebody like James Delos to live longer than he's supposed to. So there is a bigger idea at play. I personally think that the blackmail and extortion, if that is the case, came later. I believe the initial selling point that William gave James was more of the what Facebook is doing right now to us. William says to James, half of your marketing budget goes to trying to figure out what people want because they don't know. Here they're free. Nobody's watching. Nobody's judging. At least that's what we tell them. This is the only place in the world where you get to see people for who they really are. Meaning we can get the information from what these people want and we can sell it. He owns other companies, so he can use that to sell other products or even do the Facebook thing, sell the information. Christina likes to go to the strip bar all the time, sell her these products when she goes online. Yeah, for sure. But the key indicator there is him telling them, at least that's what they tell them. They sin in peace. Nobody's watching. But later on, he says that's why your world exists when he's talking to Lawrence, a place hidden from God where they could sin in peace. But we were watching them, tallying up all of their sins, all of their choices. And yet he says judgment for those sins wasn't the point. They had something else in mind entirely. So they could have been saving all this. That could have been a backup plan for something they wanted to do, but it wasn't the main point. So yet again, the riddles keep yeah. going round and round. What was the main point? The really big questions are all still out on the table. Yeah. I mean, we have plenty of ideas. We talked about the fact that they could use it to create copies of them, put them in the park or put them out in the real world. I think James wanted either a cure because he was getting sick and dying or to be able to be replicated into a body, but have full awareness and still be him. Something similar to that. Yeah, that's what I was saying before. That really seems to be the bigger goal that they only touch upon briefly and something that Logan alludes to later. And we still don't quite know how that would work with getting your consciousness into a host or how that would help to extend. But I think they're broaching that topic to get us thinking about it. But we will break down all that and more. Let's slow it down for a sec and talk about some of our other notes on the episode, including the music notes. We had Runaway... Ramin Jawadi's piano version of the Kanye West song, which plays while William and Logan are out for drinks and Logan meets the representatives. And we heard this song earlier this year during one of their trailers. And I think it's a very big clue that the actual owner of this place is Kanye West. <laughs> no, and it's geez. Kanye West World is the full name. <laughs> okay. Honestly, bad jokes aside, I really like that rendition. Mm, I've listened to it a million times. Knowing Kanye West's words to the song, they don't really fit. But the overall meaning of the song, I think, fits well. Runaway. Dolores wants to get the hell out of there and take over. She wants to run away from Westworld. 
into the real world and find those stars scattered on the ground. As a matter of fact, when Logan was talking to Dolores, I thought for sure he was about to quote one of the words in the song because it kind of fit, but he went with his own words. <laughs> well, we also got the Chopin Sonata, which Dolores played on the piano at the retirement party. And then the one she switched to at Delos's command, four song transcriptions. And finally, The Man I Love, which played as Logan was shown the demonstration room. The music in this show is always great. It definitely adds to whatever feeling they're trying to give you, which is the point of it. But I never noticed until we started doing podcasts, shows like this, there's almost always music going on. Yeah, well, that scoring by Ramin Jawadi, who we love from Game of Thrones. Moving on, we also got new faces and places. We officially meet James Delos, played by my man Peter Mullen. Lieutenant Dunleavin, who is the man in charge of the smaller Confederado group, as well as Major Craddock, the commanding military office, played by Jonathan Tucker. He's one of the actors I was talking about last episode that I was excited to see on screen. I first got to know him in Kingdom, which was a MMA show. It was actually really good. He was on Hannibal TV series, Justified, American Gods, and so much more. He went to Columbia University. He has such a unique face. It definitely lends to the badass role, which I've seen him do many times. Also, you don't see it in this, but he's super ripped. I need to get on his diet plan. Well, speaking of a big name and face, perfect for this. In this episode, you had Elazo, who used to be played by Lawrence, here by Giancarlo Esposito, who I know a lot of people love for Breaking Bad, but we recognize him as Jorge from the Maze Runner series. He's great, and you can see his range from his role in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul to this role and to his role in Maze Runner. They're completely different. He's an amazing actor, and he was asked in an interview what he thought when he got the call to play this role. He said, I've been a longtime fan of Ed Harris, so I was very excited to finally work with him. When I first read the scene, I thought, wow, what an interesting way to introduce a character who has been another character, someone who has a multi-tiered personality who can create dissension in this world of robots and humans. The unexpected nature of the scene was so exciting to me that I couldn't say no. It was such a duel in many ways, an intellectual and moral duel, even more than a physical duel. Well, I was a little surprised, frankly, that they were bringing on a name like his for such a short scene. I am hoping there is some way we get to see him more in the future. Well, I mean, it was pretty amazing. He was a man playing a man who was being controlled by another man. Yeah, and yet <laughs> still brought that Giancarlo Esposito thing to it. And finally, we got Phil, one of the techs, played by Patrick Cage, who it looks like we will be seeing more of in the future. And for places, we had Sector 19, the remote refurbishment outpost. Now, as we discussed, we jump back and forth with timelines. To simplify things, we're going to open up with the flashbacks, and then we'll go into some of the present moments. It starts out with the flashback with Arnold and Dolores in the city, and Arnold telling her to bring herself back online. He says, you're in our world. As Dolores marvels at the city skyline, Arnold says you get used to it, and after a while it doesn't look like anything at all. When Ford comes in and asks if she's ready, Arnold says the improvisations he added to her behavior aren't quite there yet and they should go with the other girl. So we see the early part of the reveries, how that's affecting her. Arnold clearly thinks there's more going on here, but Robert is just concerned with getting them ready for the demonstration. 
he's becoming frustrated with Arnold's favoritism and says he has to let it go at some point. Do you think he means let it go, just his attachment to the host, this idea that they're coming to consciousness, or something specific to Dolores herself? At this point with this show, I think it means more. We just don't know. They're being cryptic with almost every line. (laughs) There's more that's been going on. This is obviously after they've worked together for a long time. They've created these machines that are amazing. They're running out of money. Arnold's obsession has already started. It's probably in full bloom. He's already making comparisons to her and his son. So I think there's more to it for sure. Well, after they decide to go with Angela, Arnold takes Dolores out for a walk so he can show her what will be his new home. He's moving his family here so that they can be closer to his work with the park. He even says he's told her a lot about Charlie before and he's excited for them to meet. I mean, this is really going far beyond if he wants to introduce her to his child. And he says they have a lot in common. You both see it so clearly, the beauty and possibility of it. So many people have stopped seeing the wonder altogether. Maybe they don't have the courage. A strange new light can be as frightening as the dark. And Arnold thinks maybe they aren't the ones who deserve it. The beginning of his idea is that, I don't know, the hosts deserve to inherit the world more than the humans do. Which makes sense if he thinks they're some kind of better being, but then what is it that leads him to the decision that they all have to be killed eventually? You know, is it the fact that there is no place for them? That's an impossible dream and they're just going to be shut down anyway? Either way, we get a bunch of views of the background city skyline that look just like the picture that sparked the memory for Dolores. And now we understand why that was such a trigger. And I guess that means Peter Abernathy must have seen it too, the real world, at some point. Because the picture was definitely a trigger for him. Well, we do see in these flashbacks that a lot of the original hosts actually got to see the city. But not as much as her. She really got to go outside. Mm -hmm. She really hangs on to what Arnold says to her. So many people have stopped seeing the wonder altogether. She harks to that in this episode as well basically mirroring exactly what Arnold is saying. And she's using that as her reckoning. Yeah, they don't deserve to get to the valley beyond. You bring up the original host, and we got some numbers in season one that we kind of forgot about a little bit. We haven't gone back to it. When we got the host resources log, we saw that there were 82 first-generation hosts in the park, and 47 of them were designed by Arnold. Of those, there were only a few that were still in rotation. They were listing them off and Dolores was on that list. So if they are, in fact, coming to consciousness, that's still a debatable topic, it could be those ones that were specifically designed by Arnold and whatever he did differently with them. Yeah, that's something we have yet to see. I mean, there's so many theories out there about that. Some think that Dolores and Maeve were made differently, and I won't get too far into this. We've read articles of people believing that Maeve possibly can have children, mm-hmm. and it's possible that Charlotte Hale is the daughter that Maeve is remembering just grown up because it was naturally born possibly with the man in black there's so many things i mean yeah i, I think that this it just starts getting into like guesswork yeah this could be that person that could be this person um dolores could be the recreation of arnold's child a way that that can live on i mean i don't know if any of that's worth going down that track until we get some proof of those things but the questioning who is coming to consciousness and who's not is definitely a topic we're supposed to be thinking about You know, we got the idea that there was a Turing test 
that wasn't enough for Arnold. He thought that it just showed the appearance of intellect, and he saw a pyramid whereby there would be memory, and that's the reveries he put in, improvisation, them learning from their history and taking on their own personalities, self-interest, which we hear the host talking about a lot lately, and then the bicameral mind at the top, the ability to speak to themselves, one part of the brain that speaks and the other that listens. But none of that really... Right, the subconscious. None of that really speaks to emotion, which is a primary hallmark of the human experience. And that's where you get Ford coming in. And this is where I think the difference is and why I keep going back to Bernard could be the only one that's different. Ford had said last season when we started, the host emotions were primary colors, love, hate, etc. I wanted all the shades in between, but the human engineers weren't up to the task. So I built you, meaning Bernard. And together you and I captured that elusive thing, the heart. And if that's true, and Bernard's the only one that has that elusive thing that could be the closest that we get to a human experience yeah perhaps but i think there's a few times in this episode where dolores seems like she's feeling the emotions she's feeling wonder in the beginning that's an emotion right is she or is she just mimicking what we learn later william said to her when he showed her the big secret uh the weapon that we're going to talk about and when he looked at it he said that exact line all of the splendor or something to that effect. So I think an important clue that we're getting throughout the way is every time Dolores was brought out into the real world or in these important meetings, parties, she could have been listening and taking in all of that information, which makes her dangerous. But does it make her awake? I see what you're saying because she does say, looks like the stars have been scattered across the ground. And she said that twice. Mm -hmm. And when she said it the second time, that's when Arnold was like, all right, we're not going anywhere. Time to get back. The other time in this episode that I felt like she was feeling emotion is when William was talking to her alone. Mm, Yes. And when he was being so mean to her, which we'll get into later. If you watch that scene again and and look at her eyes, she's having an emotional response to what he's saying. She's crying. And we talked about Maeve kind of shaming Sizemore in the last episode, mm-hmm. perhaps experiencing embarrassment, which is a true human emotion. So we're getting a lot more of that. And I think it makes the conversation interesting. But again, those three are the most. Even when we see that Teddy is quote unquote woke, I still feel like he's not that woke yet. He's still following orders. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about him in a No, minute. that's a good point because Lawrence as well. I mean, the man in black kind of lays it out for him in this episode, the truth behind what he is. And it feels like Lawrence has no idea what he's talking about. To him, this is just another quest that the guests give him that he's going to go along with. But let's come to our second flashback. And that's where Logan gets the host demonstration. He's at a bar with young William. But William is tired and jet lagged, so he leaves early. This must still be pretty early on. William is not asked to stay for this important meeting that he's about to have. Yeah, and he's the William that we first was introduced to. He's very set back in nature. He's very... Subservient still to Logan. Yeah. The man from the Argos Initiative walks in with his associate, Angela. He's supposed to have an appointment with Mr. Delos. And while Logan is initially dismissive, many startups are looking for his cash after all. The man offers something more tangible assuming he can change his father's mind about investing. Logan, insisting he's in charge of this aspect, is brought downstairs to a private room for a demonstration. Angela encourages him to talk to the group of people and see if he can pick out the AIs. For me, this is one of the most exciting parts 
of the series, instead of expository, let me tell you about what happened, we get to see one of those breakthrough moments. Logan sees it for the first time. He's disappointed at first, thinking everyone there seems human until he realizes Angela is an AI. He's fairly impressed with that. But then she freezes the whole room and he sees they're all robots. He says, nobody can do this. We're not here yet. Nobody is. This was a very impactful scene for me because it allowed me to feel what it would actually be like if this was real life. We actually got used to it, right? The robots, how amazing they are, how real they are. It's gotten quote unquote old to us. Mm -hmm. But seeing Logan go through it for the first time put me in the driver's seat. And made me really think about how would I react if this was happening to me? Holy shit, I'd be going bonkers. And the hallmark was that they weren't too perfect the way Angela was. He was able to pick up on that fairly quickly, but he dismissed everyone else due to their human mannerisms, the little things they were doing that you wouldn't imagine robots to do. And we see a lot of characters in that room that we soon get to know or that we've seen in the past with completely different roles and what they're playing there. Major Craddock was there by the piano, just chilling, drinking, looked like a gentleman. (laughs) I have to tell you, well, one, we knew that Angela was a robot, but I had a feeling that the guy that was with her was a robot as well. And I was right, because he froze as well. I was surprised by that. They got me. I thought there would at least be one human representative. That made it that much more impactful for him. Mm -hmm. And I love how when we first walked in, he was ready to leave. He was like, I thought I was going to get a private viewing. Are all these people bidding? Yeah. You know? But I think the most important part is the end of this scene, where later Dolores watches as Angela gets out of bed and other hosts lie half naked on the floor. They are proving it, quote unquote, to Logan. She has this look on her face and kudos to Evan Rachel Wood for portraying these complex emotions with very slight facial gestures. She looked ashamed for them as though she felt bad that they had to participate in such a thing and she wasn't going to do that. She was kind of separate from it. I often wonder with Dolores, but it's times like this that do make me think I'm seeing something of an awakening in her. And she was supposed to be Angela in this scenario, right? Yes. That's what they were grooming her to do. Last minute they had to swap them out. Okay, let's put a hold on that and travel to the present or at least the near present, with Dolores and Teddy in Sector 19. The techs downstairs wonder where the next shift is as they're going on 13 hours. When one of the guests rushes out of the elevators and informs them, the hosts are rebelling. But before he can fully fill them in on the slaughter, Dolores and Teddy come down. The man tells Dolores she has no idea what's really out there, but she says she's been there before, and she orders Phil to show Teddy his history. He sees pictures of his own deaths on the tablet and wonders why he can't remember. She explains this is how they wanted it, which causes Teddy to temporarily freak out, choke the man. He wants to know why, but he's able to show restraint. So I had a lot of questions about Teddy going through last episode in this, where he's questioning Dolores. He does have these kind of instinctual responses to what he's learning, and yet we don't know if he's fully taking that in. You know, is this all how Teddy's programmed to react? Well, this opens up a big conversation for me. Teddy is finally seeing the light. He's being shown it, and he is acting accordingly at this point, but he's still following his code by following Dolores. We see later on, and I have to skip ahead to get this whole statement out. Mm -hmm. We see later on when they meet Maeve. Yeah. And we know that he's often interacted with Maeve and maybe his memory's coming back. 
You see, he was not quick to pull out the gun. He didn't feel right doing that. And I believe as the season goes along, Teddy's going to be the one that is not going to go along with Dolores. Who will stop him. Yeah. And even Maeve notices that he's questioning her. She calls him out on that. And Mm -hmm. you can kind of tell she's right. But further, and now I'm really jumping ahead. If we remember last episode, the end of it, when we saw the hosts drowning or drowned, and we believe that was Teddy in there. But we didn't see Dolores. We didn't see Maeve. Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. And this place that they keep talking about, that they're going to, there's two names for it. Some of the hosts are calling it the Valley Beyond. Others are calling it... Glory. Yes. I believe this valley is what Bernard had to flood. And of course, like I said last episode, we're going to see why. But yeah. there's a reason why Teddy's there. Because I think he, was, he ends up being on Bernard's side. The big question for me was, is that the same place the man in black is referring to? The place of judgment, the place where the weapon is stored, is it all really the same thing? Or is it going to be two different sides of that game, that path? One for redemption and one for justice. Do you even know what you were really guarding here? You don't know, do you? The real purpose of this place? But I do. Well, back to Sector 19, while Teddy holds himself back, Dolores has no hesitation dunking Phil's head into the milky substance to get information from him. And it burns, he says. A slight little comment, but I think it's things like that that give us clues. We had often wondered what actually is this milky substance they're being built in. Is that the same as the cortical fluid that's leaking from Bernard later? Do they have it in their whole bodies? Maybe a clue as to what it's made out of. Dolores learns between 600 and 800 men will be coming for them. There's a protocol for system-wide failure, and that's to secure one sector at a time and then meet at a rallying point. Phil shows her where that will be on a map. Teddy is concerned that they only have 50 men. They need allies. So Dolores orders Phil to wake up the dead Confederado leader, Lieutenant Dunleavin. And he leads Dolores and crew to find the rest of the Confederados. Here's that scene as they wait around the fire where Maeve, Lee, and Hector walk up. I think this showdown is the building blocks for the rest of the season. Dolores and Maeve seem to be on opposite sides of this revolution. Dolores tries to recruit Maeve, but she insists revenge is just a different prayer at their altar, and I'm well off my knees. And that's what we said last episode. Is what Dolores is doing any different, or is it just the follow-up of the Wyatt storyline? Is it what they wanted to happen? Whereas Maeve is writing her own story. What's important to her is to find her daughter. And I think she does see the sense in what Dolores says, where you're going to have to fight for your freedom. You can't just run off with her. And that's what you said last episode, right, Jason? What does she think? They're just going to find a place on the homestead where they can live peacefully? You know, they split off here. They go their own separate ways. Do you think they will wind up teaming up in the end or will they wind up having to go up against each other? I think at this point, I'm not ready to say what's what. There's too many moving pieces. We got the man in black out there playing his final game because his empire is falling. We have Dolores. She might as well be speaking in tongue because almost every sentence she says this episode is a half a sentence, a half a thought. Which, to be honest with you, and I might get killed by the internet for this, was a little annoying for me. It was. They would zoom in on her face. She would say something, and it sounded so 
full of knowledge, but it was a half a sentence. (laughs) It was a way to not answer and to try to keep the suspense going. But from the writer's standpoint, after a while, kind of enough is enough. You know, we know that those are the questions that are out there. If you're not going to follow up on that, do we need her in that many scenes? Do we need her kind of repeating things that we already know to build tension? And they must know that. So I go back to, is that written in intentionally to show us that Dolores is still kind of talking in a scripted Uh, way? Maybe. Okay. Whereas with Maeve, it's a little more natural. I can't imagine they've made such a big blooper without knowing how the audience is going to react to that. There's certainly a lot of points in Dolores' storyline that's very interesting. But at this point, when she's walking around in near present, where I'm not that interested Mm -hmm. because of the reasons why we just said. I mean, she's speaking so profoundly, but saying nothing. It was also kind of cool that they had a similar posse. You know, at the head of it are these seemingly woke women, and then they have their male counterpoints that are there to protect them. But um, subservient right now, you have Hector and Teddy. They each have a human that they're carrying along with them. Dolores has Phil and Maeve has Lee. They do seem to be alike in a lot of ways. And I'm interested for how that's going to wind up right now. You can see them on the map on Discovering Westworld going off into totally different geographical directions. And the man in black is somewhere in the middle. So we're definitely going to keep tracking that. And it ends with Maeve wondering why Dolores feels she can command everyone else. She says she's fighting for freedom, which means she has to give them the freedom to choose. Yeah, she played her own game on her. She outsmarted her there, for sure. Are you going to practice what you're preaching right now? Or are you already going to mess that up? It's those increased app perception levels, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What is freedom? Are they really free to follow you? Is Teddy free? You know, she questions him. So in the end, they go their separate ways. Dolores' group finds Major Craddock and his men eating at a table that looks an awful lot like the Last Supper. Right away, as soon as they open the barn doors, I was like, wow, that looks like the Last Supper. And it brings up the first of many biblical references we will hear in this episode. The Valley Beyond. Lawrence talks about reaching the pearly gates. James Delos himself says this will be like parting the Red Sea. Last season, we got the Judas Steer reference to Judas Iscariot, that the herd of steer will follow the one. And here in this scene, Dolores tells the group they don't know any better, which parallels an awful lot to they know not what they do. She kills their leader and resurrects him, now naming herself as the new savior. I'm sure there are tons more than that. And there's a really good breakdown on theweek.com, an article that's called The Mysterious Christian Symbolism of Westworld. If you want to get into it a little bit further, definitely check that out. They go through all of the references they can find. The group is extremely confused. How is Lieutenant Dunleavin back when he died recently? Dolores tries to get them to join with her, but the Major says they only follow Colonel Brigham. So I guess that's somebody we're going to be seeing very soon. And when they don't comply... Dolores and the crew eventually shoot them all, and she has Phil bring the Major back to life. I was curious when this scene was unfolding how they would take them all out. They were outnumbered, but they were able to. It looks like Teddy is a better gunsman. Yeah. that's the word, (laughs) than everyone else, especially when he's off script. And Angela's pretty badass there. Did you notice that she looked like she was wearing a head of thorns? Oh, yeah. Yet another Another reference. Yeah. There's so many out there. It's hard to name them all. We've had Clatchers say that last season it looked like Teddy was Jesus. 
Yes. And there's great reasons they gave us to why. Yeah, sure. We talked about the flood. I mean, for goodness sakes, that's his last name, Teddy Flood. <laughs> and I guess bringing somebody immediately back to life is enough to make them follow you anywhere. So I'm assuming they turn everyone else back on as well. Yeah. To have the army there. And then to go off and try to find the colonel, because that would be the last biggest step to getting all the confederados on their side. Yeah, we had a lot of people trying to man up. The man in black was trying to get his own army. Maeve's not there yet. She may be uh, in the future, but... Yeah, nobody went to Ghost Nation. So I know a lot of them got killed, but there still must be a ton of them out there up for grabs if somebody were to continue trying to get their own army. Well, also in the present, we get the Man in Black storyline. Lawrence hangs upside down from a rope, his head just above a giant ant hole. The Pardue brothers have him for theft. When the Man in Black rides up, shoots them and frees Lawrence. This was one of the first signs this season, at least, where we see such a dichotomy between the Man in Black in season one, where, of course, he couldn't be hurt. He was the man there. And this time, it's a little more harder. And he actually gets shot, even though they just grazed him. Uh, you can see from there that the stakes are higher, and it, there is real danger. Yeah, and there was a lot of questions asked. One of our Clatchers brought this up about the bullets in the shooting. We'll break that down a little more later. For me, I also thought about all of last season, how for the better part of the time, we were looking at the younger William as sort of being the good guy, the white hat. And wow, what a difference between him and the man in black he becomes later. This season already, though, they're showing us how quickly William went on that down spiral. And maybe the man in black is a little bit converted. Maybe he's looking for a way to undo some of the damage he did. He does say that place of judgment was the biggest mistake he ever made. So I wonder if that's going to be part of his game to go and try to make amends for that. Before he can cut Lawrence down, another host attacks and Lawrence is confused because that man was already dead. <laughs> and the man in black explains dead isn't what it used to be. He takes Lawrence to a bar where he retrieves a package that he stored behind a wallboard and tries to tell Lawrence the truth. He's a two-bit tour guide with a fake scripted revolution. But he's free now. The problem is the whole enterprise is going down in flames. They'll all be dead soon for real. That's why your world exists. They wanted a place hidden from God. A place they could sin in peace. But we were watching them. We were tallying up all their sins. All their choices. Of course, judgment wasn't the point. We had something else in mind entirely. But I have received my judgment all the same, Mars, and I take issue with it. Because up until this point, the stakes in this place haven't been real. So I'm going to fight my way back and appeal the verdict. Then I'm going to burn this whole fucking thing to the ground. So he says, in the little time left, we get to see what we're really made of, the men we could have been. And that's what led me to, is he trying to be something different now? I love that Lawrence is always his right-hand man. That's the guy he goes to every time he comes to the park and he wants a sidekick. He says he's going to burn the whole place down. That's a little scary. He knows he has to go three days ride west 
but the Confederados are amassing and the only route there is through Pariah. So the man thinks the game has found him. So again, this is when they hearken back to watching everyone, tallying up all their sins and all their choices. Another cryptic scene that gives us some information to what this place is. Yeah, I mean, he says judgment was never the point, and yet he was off there building this place of judgment. So, I don't know, after a while of watching all of those sins, the company didn't feel that was something they needed to do anything about, but maybe William wanted to take it upon himself. You know, they deserve to be punished. I'm not sure. I'm not that quick to think about words like punished. Yeah, they're using tallying up their sins, but they're they're being very... (laughs) grandiose about it. I don't know if it's punishment or things like like that. I think it's just another way to make money. Again, just like Facebook is doing now. Uh, I'm just remiss to go that route yet. Oh, the board, for sure. But William off on his own. He says he built this place and nobody knew about it, which I don't know how he did that without Ford knowing that he was constructing a weapon in the middle of the park. Um, But it feels like he went rogue. With his intentions? Yeah, when you use the word weapon, you know, it could be a way to destroy the park, or it could be a figurative weapon. A weapon to really rich people is a way to defame them, deface them, or to get rid of their money. So there's a lot of possibilities. Yeah, which I would agree with you, because a lot of times Westworld does take things metaphorically, Except at the end, when William shows Dolores, it looks like something he's physically building. There's machines out there. They're digging up terrain. Could be a database, though, like a data farm. Oh, okay. Uh, Again, I'm just guessing. I see (laughs) what you mean, yeah. Before we go any further, unlike how I felt when Dolores was having her moments in this episode, Ed Harris, just sitting at the table talking to Lawrence, was so amazing. So well acted. His voice, his face... I was definitely enthralled with what he was saying, and I was captivated. I agree. It's, a, it, it's funny that it doesn't look very different from what he went through all of season one off on this game separately, working with Lawrence, and yet because of the acting Ed Harris brought to it, it felt like it had a different gravity. The two of them ride through a destroyed and desolated pariah, and the man in black says, the park's changing. This is what happens when you let a story play all the way out. I think that statement says a lot. One of which is he got bored. Obviously, we saw that in season one. And he knows that anything that happens the next day, they clean it up and we start all over with these narratives. And I guess if you're there long enough, it gets pretty boring. Mm -hmm. This is finally, all these dead bodies are still here. All the destruction is still being shown and it's just building now. And the players themselves don't really know what to do with themselves. Mm -hmm, (laughs) You know, where's, where's the next narrative? That's when we get to meet the new Elazo. The man in black tries to recruit them, telling them there's a new revolution. If they help him reach it, they will get a treasure beyond imagination, a real victory, the truth. And this story, I loved that Alazo starts to tell him about the elephant, how they're trained when they're young not to pull the stake up and so they never even try again. I wonder to myself if that's about the host's not rebelling until now, or if it's the man in black himself. And then he says to him, this game was meant for you, William, but you must play it alone. And all of the men shoot themselves. He's toying with them. I love it. Ford, man. Well, Ford is making the man in black retrace his steps from the first time he was in the park. You notice that? He's having to go to all the places he went to before. The only reason why they went back to Pariah is because Lawrence said we needed to go there. Yeah. 
So right there, the narrative is still being controlled by Ford. What I was excited because we were saying there's no way that was the only host that Ford put his consciousness in. Which makes me think about last season when we saw in the basement all those hosts that are out of commission. And then we saw in last season when Sizemore went into that basement, it was empty. Mm-hmm. So I have a feeling all those hosts are out there in Westworld, perhaps other parks, and they all have Ford's consciousness in there. That Little was a lot of, of... Which, uh, within the biblical framework, would make Ford God, right? He's omnipresent within yeah. this world that he's built. His narrative, his storyline continues on even after his death. Okay, so if he's God, what would... Let's go back to that scene where we met Major Craddock, that Last Supper scene. What would he be? Who would he be? Jesus? Major Craddock? Yeah, because he was brought back to life. Um, No, I don't think... He would be representative of anything. I think it would be Dolores herself, who, if she is bringing people back to life and having them follow her, would be Jesus, I suppose. It's hard to see it that way right now because it doesn't look as though anything Dolores is doing is particularly good, but that would pit her journey against the man in black's journey, who was the self-proclaimed villain of the story, as he said a while ago. That's the only thing you were ever missing from this was the villain. And so Dolores is headed to the valley beyond heaven, whereas the man in black is headed to the place of judgment. But I'm wondering if we go back to what one of our Clatchers said, if Teddy is Jesus and we just have yet to see him go against the religion of the times, which would be against Dolores. Yeah, I mean, he, he's not important enough yet, I think, to have that symbolism because he hasn't found his place. He doesn't seem awake. That could all change, but the way we're seeing it now, I wouldn't put him in that narrative yet. Okay, we're going too off because we, we still, we don't we definitely don't have enough information yet to keep going down these roads. No, I just think that you can't bypass that when there's so much symbolism being brought up in one episode. They are wanting you to play with it. But it does end with the man in black saying he was the one to build that place of judgment and it was his biggest mistake. Right away, bells were going off in my head. What does that mean? He built something. It's a mistake. So now I know that the next couple of weeks we'll be discussing what could that place be. And what is the weapon, if that's what it is. But we're going to come back to that at the end of the episode. Next, we get a few more flashbacks. We go to a scene in Sweetwater where the same narrative is playing out. Dolores drops her can. Just as Teddy picks it up, though, this time, everyone is frozen. A helicopter comes down out of the sky and lets out James Delos. He tells William he thinks this whole thing is folly and his fuck-up son invested in the future, but he's only interested in reality. This is where William challenges him, saying it's leverage. People don't know what they want, but here they're free. You're right, this place is a fantasy. Nothing here is real, except one thing. The guests. Half of your marketing budget goes to trying to figure out what people want. Because they don't know. But here they're free. Nobody's watching. Nobody's judging. At least that's what we tell them. This is the only place in the world where you get to see people for who they really are. And if you don't see the business in that, then you're not the businessman that I thought you were. And that's why I went to the angle of 
utilizing it as some form of extortion, gathering information on them, because they're the only ones that have a record of this now, what those people are actually doing. However, if they were using it for that, that brings me to a bigger question. The first time that they pull that on somebody and blackmail them with that, now other people are going to learn about it and nobody would want to come to the park anymore, right? If they know that they're being monitored that closely. Yeah, that's why I don't think it's something that simplistic. But I don't know if they would really need to use it. Having it and threatening people with it as needed would probably be enough if that's um, an added bonus that they might get. But either way, if it's for that, for the sale of the information, for both, James sees the business profit in it and he relents. All the while, Dolores is frozen, but they held the shot on her as though she was watching and taking all of that in. Another situation that makes you think, were people just walking by her, thinking they could say and do what they wanted because she's just a host or she's just frozen, but she was able to remember those things. The same with the scene at the party that's coming up where she's playing the piano and she freezes, but again, they kind of go in close with the camera on her face. And that takes us to that next flashback where Dolores plays the piano at the retirement party for James. And a little girl, Emily, comes up and tells her she's beautiful. Dolores sees it is William's wife and child. I don't know what William was trying to do here. What was he playing at by having Dolores at this party where his wife and child will be? You know, I thought William didn't know she'd be playing it because the way he looked at first was surprised when he saw her. I don't think so because then James comes up to him when he's talking about the party and says he's surprised that... William brought in hosts to run it. I think he knew hosts would be there. Uh, To me, it looked like it was the beginning of him just being mean, just being a bad person. Like he thought he could have it all and he's the one in control. And, um, you know, she's a plaything of his now. We also get that really important line where he is talking to James Delos, who's coughing and seemingly very ill. He tells... William, he doesn't have much time. And William tells him he needs to have patience for another chance. So I'm wondering if at this point, William is lying to James and just waiting for him to die so Mm. that he has full power. Telling him that there's... Something, there's a chance, there's a a way that they can fix it. Hmm. Or it could be the beginning of the riff between Ford and William, because maybe William knows that Ford has something that could help James. And that's when they start fighting. And he's like, Ford, I need that so that James could, you know, live or something similar to that. Yeah. And that eventually William figures out that he thinks it's really Arnold who had the, uh, the bigger ideas of getting the host to consciousness. So yeah, this could be the beginning of all those discoveries. I would love to get a scene with the two of them, young William and Ford. Yeah. I don't, we didn't hear anything about Anthony Hopkins being back though, like legit fully back. How could you not show that, though? It's such a big part of the backstory that we're missing. How did they get to this place now where they're playing with each other and Ford is building him a real story? There's so much, you know, to tell. Yeah, what a wonderful chance to have Hopkins back. I wonder if they're waiting for season three to have him back and it'll be that much more impactful. That could be. Where we see flashbacks with him or something similar to that. That could be. Or the host, the, the final host of Ford comes out. It's actually Ford, (laughs) Anthony Hopkins. 
Well, at the end of this scene, Dolores eventually wanders out onto the back patio where Logan is taking drugs and spouting drunken knowledge. He says it's the sounds of fools fiddling while the whole species starts to burn and they lit the match. May your forever be blissfully short. And, you know, that's what tipped us off that they think there is something to these hosts being able to extend their lives, allow them to live forever. You know, otherwise, why is Logan talking about that? And this is clearly not the direction Logan saw things going in when he invested his father's money into the operation. He was given a demonstration of he thought he was buying the future. But as William realized early on, that's not what James Delos wanted. And that's not what got him to agree to investing. What's funny is he's talking about how dumb they are trying to build this escape Meanwhile, he's trying to escape with heroin and alcohol. Yeah, well, at this point, it seems like he's lost everything that he thought he used to have. William, who's become quite an ass, is the one in his father's good graces and the one who will be taking over the company when he dies. They already lit the fuse. Well, we get one more flashback between William and Dolores, which seems a little later on. He brings her back online for a harsh conversation telling her she's just a thing, and he can't believe he fell in love with her. I realized it wasn't about you at all. You didn't make me interested in you, you made me interested in me. Turns out you're not even a thing. You're a reflection. You know who loves staring at their own reflection. Everybody. Everybody wants a little bit of what I found here. And I can't wait to use you and every one of your kind to help give it to them. Yet again, he reiterates this. He will give that to them, but there's also something beyond that. An answer to a question no one ever dreamed of asking. And so this is where, okay, is it getting a little repetitive? Even William's coming out with statements (laughs) like this now. But what is that question? What is it that he thought to ask that's so much bigger? And that's when he takes her to the Mesa where the machines are seemingly terraforming something and asks her the infamous line, have you ever seen anything so full of splendor? So this scene with Dolores, he's so mean. He's just, it's almost weird continue to think what could make a man change that way. He was not that way at all. A broken heart? Yeah, that's why I I think that between that scene at the party and here, he must have lost his wife. More must have happened. He's really off the deep end to kind of evil villain bad guy now. And again, Clatchers, you should watch that scene again. Her eyes, you see it in it. She's feeling what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's taking all of that in. And that's That's why I say even those scenes where it seemed like she wasn't listening, we know she already had the reveries. She was already able to remember. And she's telling us now she was there. She remembers all of it. That's why she's different. In the final scene in the near present, Teddy realizes that this glory and valley beyond is all the same thing, the same destination. And she tells him she knows what they will find there because an old friend was foolish enough to show her. It's not a place, it's a weapon that she will use to destroy them. And that's where we end the episode. So we could continue to deliberate to try to figure out what that place is. But I think at this point, we should just sit back Mm -hmm. and let the show give us little bits more uh, before we start to figure it out. 
hopefully a lot of it more sometime soon. We'll get way more Dolores half sentences. <laughs> I know what to do because I've seen it. Oh, okay. Next scene. Well, that takes us to our reverie rating for episode two, Jason. What do you give reunion on a scale of one to ten? Bearing in mind, IMDb gave it an 8.9, and you were at an 8.1 for episode one. Well, actually, I'm half joking when I'm complaining. You know we love this show. And I did like this episode better than last episode. It gave us a little more to go off of. It gave us some excitement. We got to see the real world. We got to see a little bit more. Wow, the hosts were in the real world which made my brain go in so many directions. Well, if they were in the real world and no one could notice, does that mean that there's already hosts in the real world? Mm -hmm. Did Ford put them out there? What would stop them from doing that? Is that season four, season five? Is that when we're going to find out? There's so many ways to go with that, which is very exciting. Being reunited with young William and Logan, I realized how much I did miss them in the storyline. I don't know how much more we'll get of them. Something's telling me a lot more. It's going to be this kind of episode with flashbacks throughout the whole season. Um, I'm a little disappointed there's no nudity this season, really, (laughs) except for that one dude. I don't know what happened to Westworld. Maybe it's going to be a shift to dude nudity in season two. So for this episode, I'm going with 8.5 reveries. Well, I agree with you on all of those points. I do tend to get a little frustrated with the feeling strung along and with the implementation of timelines just to keep us confused. But there are certain areas I wanted to get more background and this is the way to do it. I wish though, instead of spending as much time with young William, I like getting him, but I would have liked a little more with young Ford and Arnold and what's going on on that side of things. And eventually I would love to get Ford and William together in a flashback, that would be ideal. Yeah, they're definitely not going that route this season, though. Doesn't seem like it, although I'm already pretty surprised and feeling like I have no idea where they're going in the future. I, too, liked it more than last episode as we did get some questions answered and some information. So I am also giving it an 8.5 reveries. And that brings us to our Clatcher section of the podcast, where we go over MVBs and give some shout outs. We want to give some very big shout outs and thank yous to our new Patreon members, new players to our army, and we're almost ready to set off into the valley beyond. Just wanted to let you guys know that month is almost up. Actually, it's the last day of the month. So by the time you listen to this, it'll be the next month. So that means you will still have a chance to be a part of next month's drawing. If you become a Patreon member, you get put into the small pool of names of new Patreon members who we draw from a Clatch Nation hat. And if your name is picked, you get free gear. And of course, we have our second drawing for all the Patreon members every month. So you guys keep a lookout for that video on Patreon. That's two raffles for free items of gear every month. You have the opportunity to win. In addition to everything else you always get on Patreon, access to our exclusive community chat boards, monthly bonus episodes, and movie reviews. If you like what we're doing and you want to hear more, this is the best place to do it. By becoming a Patreon member, you, one, know that you're helping Christina and myself out. Never mind the time we put into this, but also the cost for the bandwidth for the amount of downloads we get. It's costly every month, so the money we make from Patreon goes directly back into the podcast. But also, you'll know that you get over two days worth of content by being a Patreon member. That's 48 hours worth of podcasting that you can listen to and enjoy. And to become a Patreon member, just go to coffeeclatchcrew.com and click on Patreon. 
And if nothing else, don't forget to subscribe so you get your episodes downloaded right away. And if you're liking what you're hearing, give us a rate and review on iTunes. It seems a lot of other Westworld podcasts are bringing themselves online. So that will help for other listeners to find us and become Clatchers too. Speaking of awesome reviews, we want to give a big thank you to Zippy Rich, A Red 4, H Bork, Christine on 16 for your lovely reviews. We read every single one of them and I have very low self-esteem. So <laughs> every single one makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> and moving on to our MVBs every week after the Westworld episode, Clatchers get one day to cast their vote on our page at CKC Podcast, where we give you four choices for that particular episode. And this week we give you Dolores, Young William, The Man in Black, and Arnold. Coming in fourth place with 7% was Arnold. I know he didn't have a big episode and that's probably why he got so few, but I thought that first scene was so key to show you what was happening back in the day, the relationship Arnold was already forming with the hosts and how that was diverging from Ford and the pitch to the Delos board. Also, we got to see Arnold before his child died and we learned that there was actually a child named Charlie. We thought, or we had assumed that this was a made-up history or memory that Ford gave Bernard. But it looks like, actually, this is what happened. Yeah, well, that's what they told us last season, right? That they had built this into there because, as Ford believed, it helped to have suffering and a cornerstone memory. And thus, the loss of that would make him more realistic. But apparently, they did draw an awful lot from real life. So also, that's giving us a little bit more of a reflection on why... Arnold essentially killed himself by making his own robot shoot him. Mm -hmm. And coming in at third place with 21% is the man in black. I'm surprised that young William beat out the man in black because, as I said before, we see young William going towards more of an evil down spiral. Um, the man in black still along with that game, but I wonder if he has thoughts of trying to redeem himself. And that's kind of what we were being shown in this episode. Well, I believe he got less votes because he's not winning. Ford is still getting the best of him mm, at this point. Yeah. But we are seeing the man who came in second place, young William, with 30%. We're seeing him winning, winning the job with James Delos and eventually winning over James Delos. Winning over his own son, Logan. And taking over everything, essentially. But it's no surprise. Coming in first place with 42% is Dolores. While we wonder how woke she actually is, she did a lot this episode. We see how much she's been absorbing from the time she was first changed. And she's got major plans for what she's going to do with that information that she took from William. The more we hate William, the more maybe we'll come to empathize with her using his weapon against him. Right now, it's just massive slaughter, so it's hard to get on board, but they are kind of building up that villain character that she can go up against. Yeah, but if I was Teddy, I'd be like, I'd grab her and be like, listen, when you have an idea, say the full sentence. Tell me what the hell you're saying, because I'm following you on all this. <laughs> well, and our Clatchers had thoughts on MVBs for this week. Kirk says, gotta be Dolores. I mean, did you see that black dress? Wes weighing in by saying, my first runner-up is hashtag Akachita. His portrayal of Han Zi in season two of Fargo was heartbreaking. So glad to see him again and in a big prestigious HBO series. 
John says, whoa, great twist. Young William is the mastermind behind gathering the information on the guests, and now Dolores remembers it all. Wow. All right, so now to our votes. Christina, I'll let you go first. Who is your most valuable being? Well, based on everything we just said, I have to go with Dolores for this episode. She is possibly beginning to change my mind. I don't know. I have a lot more still to see, but I enjoyed her performance and the emotion that Evan Rachel Wood is bringing to the character. I got to go for this episode, even though I don't like the character he's turning into, young William. I know it's hard to remember, but if you just watch episode one and two and remember how young William actually was in the beginning to how he is now. It's quite amazing that he was able to, one, overtake Logan, and two, get in the head of James. Not an easy feat, especially considering James, who is so rich, so powerful, and so old. It's hard to change someone at that point in their life who's done so much and done so well. And seemingly made him trust him on top of all that. Seemingly trust him with his life. Yeah. Well, we also got some other Clatcher's comments, including good questions from Clay. And I said I would come back around to this information. He asks, number one, how did the simulation bullets start killing people at the event? The first few episodes in season one, they bounced away from the man in black and Logan. But the first time William was shot down, it knocked him down. In William and Logan's first gunfight together, they bounced off Logan almost before it hit him. I had that question, but it didn't seem to get answered. Also, Teddy's bullet bounced off what looked like a shield in front of the man in black when he took Dolores to the barn in season one. How do those same bullets start killing guests in the season two opener? So I have two things to potentially help explain this. In an interview, Nolan was asked, what prevents the guests from hurting each other? Nolan said, it's not the guns, it's the bullets. We thought a lot about this. In the original film, the guns won't operate guest on guest. But we felt the guests would want to have a more visceral experience here. So when they're shot, it has sort of an impact. They're called simunitions. The U.S. military trains with rounds like the ones we're talking about. There's a bit of an impact, a bit of a sting, so it's not entirely consequence-free for the guests. Also, if action is putting guests into jeopardy, the host will or should steer the scene back into safety. It's part of what they've been designed to do, a feature in the program called the Good Samaritan Reflex. So this answers why guests shouldn't be able to hurt each other, guest to guest, that's completely reliant upon the host stopping them from doing that. If they weren't, they could easily hurt each other. And the reason the host can't harm the humans, number one, they're not supposed to be able to. Bernard tells us in episode one, it seems that Ford reprogrammed the hosts to see the humans as other hosts, now enabling them to shoot. But that still doesn't answer the question, how are they being harmed with the simunitions? So now I go to an item in the Delos Terms and Conditions. Part C says, all weapons and equipment used within Delos Parks are the exclusive property of Delos Inc. Gun ammunition contains proprietary safeguards related to bullet velocity, and tampering with gun safety features or ammunition automatically transfers liability to you and absolves Delos Inc. of any injury or death that may occur as a result. So the velocity has been turned down. That way, as they say, it will sting, but not truly injure or kill somebody. Perhaps that goes up a little bit as you get farther outside of Sweetwater and the difficulty level goes up, but it's still not really going to hurt them. It seems as though they must have tampered with the velocity as well to make it go harder, hurt more, and definitely be able to kill people now. 
And that also doesn't exclude the fact that some people may have brought real guns or real bullets into the park. Whatever the man in black has stashed away in these areas he's playing around with could be real bullets. We see that people like the Delos security team absolutely have real rifles with real bullets. There's also been some theories put out about this. The guns and bullets are part of a much larger park-wide AI-controlled smart system. The park security team monitors and controls all shootouts. Now, that would be difficult, but we did see they have some level of control last season when the man in black needed authorization to blow up his jail cell. The next one is that the guns have sensors that adjust bullet velocity based on the target. So it's person for person, and it actually can adjust accordingly and maybe that's why some of those scenes it didn't even appear to touch the man in black actually you just jogged my memory in the scene with lawrence in the bar remember he punches into the wall he's pulling out explosives there right Mm -hmm. so he has those in his hand right so we'll see him use that later on so he stashed away real items for sure and along those lines the bullets could contain sensors and decelerators that activate near humans so it's all programmed differently but now that the park has run amok Those systems could be changed, everything has gone haywire, and they can be injured. Clay's second question. In season one, why did the decommissioned hosts get their CPUs scrambled with a Dremel tool instead of just taking out the brain like we see them do in the field this season with the Ghost Nation host on the beach? And furthermore, how does Clementine, who got lobotomized, come back online with no reprogramming? Those are really good questions. Last season, they kind of built up this CPU And we saw them doing what looked like a host lobotomy on some of them, sticking that tool up their nose to scramble it. Why wouldn't they have just taken out that brain center that we see, which appears to be more important? Well, to be honest, maybe we're just thinking it's more important because we're relating it to our brain. But maybe that's just the memory. That's it. It's not the functionality of the machine moving and everything. Maybe that's just the hard drive memory bank. So... Everything that happened, you can see in there. But without it, they can still function. I bet you they can function, but not have any of the things that kind of make them them. And that this is what Arnold and Ford were messing with in order to improve them. Um, Somebody says they think that the CPU is kind of like a secondary brain, just what keeps the biological components running. Whereas the item we see them take out of the circular part of their head stores the memories, the logs, has the perception levels. Like you said, it's kind of the difference between brain and backup except for reverse. They think the CPU is the backup, whereas the circular device is the brain. Either way, this is what we know from what the showrunners told us. Their brains don't require oxygen. They don't suffer brain death the same way we do. Their cognition is controllable and malleable. On a structural level, they can't be killed the same way as you and I. Their brains are protected by a cortical shield and they are more powerful. So I think we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg. It does seem like that brain center is super complicated and we're going to learn more about it in the episodes to come. Also, that brought up an interesting thought for me that we had talked about at the end of last season, the fact that every host's spine has an explosive that will detonate if they try to leave the park, a failsafe that was built into their C6 vertebrae. And the host required a full rebuild to replace it. That's why Maeve had to literally burn herself down so that she could get rebuilt with a C6 that has no explosive device. Presumably, none of the other hosts in the park have had that. That's a major procedure. How would they leave the park? Is that something they could turn off in the main computer system to not explode? Well, I think Hector might have gotten his taken out too. 
Because he was yeah, burned with her. The two of them, yeah. for sure. And I wonder if that includes park to park. You know, maybe they'd be able to go to another park, just not leave the island entirely. Uh, it's an interesting question that was kind of pushed to the background. Yeah, I don't know how they'll approach that, but maybe that final place they're going to has that answer. But also, maybe, well, you're saying there's no way to just turn it off. No, it doesn't seem like it. They need a full rebuild so they can take it out of their spine. That's the only way because it's supposed to be the ultimate fail-safe. Well, how were those hosts all in the city in the flashbacks? No idea. <laughs> That's a good they had question. To rebuild them again and put it back in? It's odd. I don't know. And along that lines, maybe Dolores doesn't have one. She was built to not have one. There could be some that don't contain that. And if that's the case, then we know for sure Bernard doesn't have one. Oh, yeah. I have a feeling he doesn't either way. Uh, moving along with our Clasher comments, Kirk wrote to us on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, a couple of questions for the Westworld pod. One, if Dolores is part of the revolution, why is she killing other hosts? I still don't know the answer to that. That's part of the problem that I'm having with Dolores and her seemingly mindless slaughter. I think right now it's people that are getting in her way. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Right. And she probably has the same thought as the humans do, which is they're not really dead. They can be brought back online. She's just getting them temporarily out of the way. But how different does that make her from what we're doing to them, you know? And number two, any chance Maeve has the information that Delos wants? Because remember, she was originally programmed to escape. Yeah, I've heard that talked about, but I think that that was a different part of Ford's storyline and what he wanted to do with Maeve, how he wanted to advance her. I don't think that was the Delos board and what they were trying to do with the exported information. So I think Peter still has that and I think he's going to come back on the scene very soon. Well, and the final thing, something we talked about a while ago last season when we discussed the ties to other art, literature, and Greek mythology, the name Delos itself, which comes from the floating island in Greece in mythology, was considered a major sacred site. And we talked about the story of it, that this is the place where Leto gave birth to Artemis and Apollo. After she was discovered to be pregnant by Zeus, his jealous wife Hera banished her and put a curse on her, forbidding her to give birth on any steadfast land. So she wandered around pregnant for a long time until she found the loophole to this, that Delos was a piece of land, the only one in the whole world that wasn't fastened down because it was a floating island. Poseidon took pity on her and allowed her onto the island in order to give birth. He held it in place for her. And after she had given birth, she blessed the island and gave it pillars to hold it down. So I don't think it's a mistake that that's where they took the name from. Now that we officially have it confirmed that it's an island, could it go so far as to be a floating island? And what would that mean for this world? We do see it seemingly located in a similar location because we see in the present day the Chinese government or whatever Asian country that this is an island off of coming onto the island to talk to them. And now that we get the flashback to Bernard, we also see Chinese lettering on the wall. So it would appear to be in that same spot, but do they have the ability? Is this a constructed, fabricated island that could move at will if it wanted to? Well, I think that's a leap, but it would make sense to one of the reasons why Carl Strand was able to tell him to leave, sign the NDA and go because you have no jurisdiction here. Yeah, if it was an island that belonged to a mainland, they would have ultimate control, right? Maybe, unless they were given so much money that they signed it over. But that would be a cool twist if it was actually floating. 
And if they do start to come after them, this is a way that they could get away. I don't know. Is that a way that they can free themselves? There's so many possibilities there. And to name it that, I have to wonder if they played with that idea for a plot in the future. Young William and James Delos did arrive on a helicopter. Mm -hmm. All right. So we dissected the possible meaning of Delos. But in this episode, we also learned that the original name for this company was going to be Argos. Yeah, the Argos Initiative, yet more ties to Greek mythology, and this could go in a couple different directions. Argos is the name of one of the ancient cities in Greece. It's also a term that's used to refer to the ancient Greeks that assaulted the city of Troy during the Trojan War. You have the story of Jason and the Argonauts, where Jason goes to reclaim the Golden Fleece and brings the army of Argonauts with him. They jump aboard a boat called the Argo, which takes them there. And that's primarily what I'm thinking about because we're talking about it now being an island, potentially a floating island. Could this be an actual boat, a way that they thought of to get off of the island? Where were they going with the name Argos? And it also just reminds me of what I said last episode with it being reminiscent of the Ark. Yes. If we were going with the religious route. And, you know, maybe they have nothing to do with each other, but uh, that's a ship. Yeah, and I don't think they pull these names out of nowhere. I think that's intentional. So everything combined, just something to keep an eye out for the future. What we've learned with podcasting with shows, especially similar to this kind of show, is the first couple of episodes, we always get a little wild with our theories because we're not given much yet. But then as the season goes along, we'll be able to zero in closer and cement more reasonable theories. Yeah, more solid theories. They're throwing a lot out there this episode. So we have to throw a lot out there and see what sticks. Yeah, this has happened before where we had so many ideas, but we didn't want to say it in the podcast because we didn't want to be all over the place. But then those ideas that we didn't mention end up happening. true. And we're like, oh my God, (laughs) we should have said that. So now we're being extra careful to say it all. (laughs) Absolutely. And if you see anything else come up related to Greek mythology or some of these other ties, if you have theories about that, please feel free to write in and let us know. And before we go to our spoiler section, if you guys are at work and you're bored, which you probably are, Most likely you're by a computer or at least by your phone because you're listening to us. Give yourself a second to check out coffeeclatchcrew.com. There you can see all the other channels and all the other shows that we do. But you can also see that on the homepage, we give you a countdown every week to when the episode, around when the episode will be released. Sometimes we're off by a couple hours. That's my fault in editing. It's a literal countdown, but also you can check out our gear store and you can do your shopping there by clicking on Amazon, which will take you directly to the Amazon site and do your typical, normal Amazon shopping. But by doing that, you're making the rich 1% powerful men like James Delos pay the CKC podcast a little bit for the purchases you're making. That's going to do it for episode two, except for our very short spoiler section on what's to come for next week. If you are afraid of those spoilers, we will see you next time when we review episode three, Virtu e Fortuna. That's all about a tuna fish sandwich. (laughs) For those of you still here, we got our preview for the next episode, where the hosts say that the humankind refuses to die, and shouldn't they too try to survive? Dolores is talking to Bernard. We see Ghost Nation and the Delos military having what looks like a showdown and then a fight. Yeah, they got automatic guns. Yeah, and we just talked about, would Ghost Nation be picked up as an army for one of the people, one of our major players we're discussing? So if that's the case, we're going to see that really soon. Dolores, again, talking in her riddles, saying the truth is we don't all deserve to make it. And there is a tiger in the bushes. Now, well, if you, 
Now, this might be the same tiger that we see dead later on. Well, presumably they could be brought back to life the same way host humans can, right? Of course, but I think we're starting to see the breadcrumbs come together. Oh, you think this is before he died? Oh, for sure. We're still two weeks before um, the flood. Okay. Gotcha. Christina's getting confused with the timelines. (laughs) I'm having a brain malfunction. No, I thought thought you meant that somebody brought him back, which would be kind of cool to see a host animal brought back. I think we're getting a progression that's slowly going to get us back to the timeline that we open up this season with. Mm -hmm. And maybe that'll be the second to last episode. And then the last episode, we'll see what Bernard does from that point on. I think that's actually going to have to happen sooner if it's true that we visit Shogun World in episode five, unless that's only Maeve and a very small select group of hosts that go, which I could see. I could see that being the case. Well, I see that being the case because Maeve is not with everyone else. She's with her small three people. Yeah, yet. Will it stay that way? Will it be like this very small side mission or will she be forced to kind of come into the bigger war that they're all having? I don't know. And if you were here for last week's spoiler section, you will know that we also talked about the potential meanings behind this title, the difference between virtue and fortune. What did Machiavelli's The Prince say about that? And what might that foreshadow for our show as far as free will? At this point, the only reason I can think of Maeve going to Shogun World is if she goes all the way back to where that cabin is and she finds out that her child is no longer in that storyline. Was moved to a different park. Yeah. Yeah. And based on what we know happened there, which was a major issue and caused Maeve to have a malfunction and they had to wipe her, give her a new storyline, I could see that maybe they just wanted to remove that trigger altogether and move her child to another park. But what I've been thinking is, regardless if she's here or there, theoretically, she has a new mother now, right? Somebody else that's taking care of her and could be scripted to feel similar to how Maeve felt to her. So I don't think this woman is just going to go along quietly with Maeve removing the child. Anyway, should be really interesting. Looking forward to seeing what episode three has to bring. Don't forget to rate and review and definitely subscribe to this podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us. And until next week... This round's on me. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.